Welcome back, all of our favorite listeners, whether you listen consistently or inconsistently, or skip an episode or two, or five, which is probably what, or five, which is probably what most of you do because our podcasts are unnecessarily long. Funny enough, my mom has started listening to the podcast. Oh no. <laughs> and that's a little terrifying. I don't know how I feel about that. Um... I think she she what which episode did she listen to? She listened her first episode was the Little Women one. Okay, that's that's decent. Oh yeah, it's decent except for the part that I kind of stopped talking halfway through. But like, oh yeah, I guess good episode. <laughs> uh, for some of you listeners, you may have been following my attempt at getting a master's. Maybe. Maybe one of you. Ben, most likely. Turns out I'll be going to Western University in Ontario. London, Ontario, mm. to be exact. Um, pretty much officially announced um, I know... as of today. Nice. I know you were talking about UVic. Did that just, like, monetarily not work out? or I, I mean, out of respect for UVic, I don't think I can give specifics. But okay, that's long fair. story short, I could not receive an offer from uvic due to reasons relating to covid and their something to do with finances but i can't give any more specifics than that long story short it was a bad time exactly but on the podcast today we have one of um, the professors who has contributed to my education and therefore is one of the reasons why i can am able to go and pursue a master's one of the Um, ambrose legends you might say (laughs) Yeah, one of the Ambrose legends. That's great. Small pool of people to <laughs> it's pull It's HPT himself. Oh, good heavens. Yeesh. We have uh, Dr. Colin Tobelmeyer, um from Ambrose University on the podcast with us today. Continuing our trend of having great profs from Ambrose on the podcast. Am I supposed to say hi now? Is that the... You, 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 <laughs> that was the, I, you that was the intro. Want. That was the whole intro. That was the same. I'm glad to be here, you guys. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, do you want to give the audience a quick, uh, you know, who's who, a quick little intro on yourself, if there's anything quick you want summary. people to know? Oh, I don't know. Uh, you already said the salient details, probably. I am I teach um, biblical studies at Ambrose University. I'm the, my title, I guess, is Associate Professor of Old Testament Studies and Chair for the Ambrose School of Ministry, which means I... I uh, they give me lots of administrative work with relatively little uh, reimbursement. <laughs> <laughs> but I, ru- I help to run the undergraduate ministry training program at Ambrose is sort of my, uh, my, my gig apart from teaching. And then, yeah, I don't know. I, I, uh, my research work is mostly um, hermeneutics and prophetic literature and some theoretical linguistics. And, and then I do a bunch of other side gigs because I have the academic equivalent of ADHD and I can't stop thinking about other things. And so, just I got a I got a piece coming out with um, that I published with uh, Nikayla Reese and, and Dr. Beth Stovell, who's one of our other colleagues, uh, which is a uh, sort of biblical theology of alleviation of human poverty, sort of a human flourishing argument, mm-hmm. which actually is the the sort of background for a class that uh, Nikayla is teaching it for us at Ambrose right now. So I'm in that class right now. Yeah, well, the the a lot of the backbone for that class got built out of our research work, and so she like she expanded it to a number of other areas, but. But we built the spine out in the paper, and it's it should be published in the International Journal of Public Theology in fall, probably. 
Assuming we get our edits done. Yeah, kind of on that note, I don't know if it got recorded. I missed it, sadly, but you just did, like, a seminar sort of thing? Oh, uh, yeah, like a public... We had um, Dr. Coots and I, Dr. John Coots, who was one of our systematic theologians, uh, we just did a a public lecture on the history of race and racism in the Bible. Uh, I guess that was uh, Thursday last week, I suppose, which would make it, what, Thursday the something of February... (laughs) What week yeah. is it right now? It was the 25th of February, yeah. Which is, if people are interested, there are probably ways to get uh, access to the, the recorded version of the lecture, which I think should be posted. Those lectures are all part of um, uh, of an alumni series, a series of public okay. lectures profs are doing for, for alumni. And so if you go to the alumni section of the Ambrose website, um, I think that's where you should be able to at least find contact info to ask for a copy. Cool. That'd be fun. Because I've heard good things and I was... It sounded really cool. I just, I think I was busy that day or something. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, and that's part of it's why it's why the Zoom thing is is helpful, right? People can watch it oh, again yeah. later. But yeah, mm-hmm. cool. Um, what's your favorite class that you taught at Ambrose or teach at Ambrose? I don't know. Um, I teach a bunch of classes I really like. Um, teaching Wisdom Lit right now, which is one of my favorite <sighs> classes to teach. Uh, which meant we were talking about <laughs> um, um, some fairly explicit sexual imagery in Song of Songs mm. today, <laughs> mm. which. It's always an intriguing experience. Uh, yeah, I really like teaching the the wisdom lit. Um, I um, I teach a Bible and popular culture class, which is a yes. lot of fun. Glendon, you were in that class, right? You weren't you weren't in that class, were you, Noah? Yeah, I was in the same class as Glendon. Oh yeah, you were right. Never mind. I forget <laughs> yeah. sometimes. It's been you know the years roll the <laughs> years roll over a lot, and you forget sort of who was where. But yeah, Bible and pop culture is a real fun class. Um, yeah, you guys did the first iteration of that class. That was the first. Wow. Yeah, that was the first time I did that. Well, I've only done it twice, actually, now. Um, wow. And then mm-hmm. what else? Uh, I've got a biblical theology class that's sort of like an advanced interpretive theory class. The one that I teach the most regularly that I that I quite enjoy is my hermeneutics class, which I think both of you two have taken, haven't you? I didn't for sure. Yeah. No, I never got to take Oh, you didn't? Yeah, because you guys are both English majors, which <laughs> yeah. is easy to forget because you take a lot of um, <laughs> theology and it's Bible true. classes for English majors. I think every class I took outside of English was uh, something in Christian studies. <laughs> that, that's definitely the case for me. I I think Bible and pop culture is one of like my favorite classes that I've taken. It was, I mean, such a like coalescing of my interests, and then I don't know. It was just good. It was a good like setup for hey, here's how all of these things function. So oh, that's good. Sometimes it feels a little um, chaotic. Because it's really it's really content focused as a class. Like oh, we, yeah. we sort of we get at ideas by means of just watching and discussing content, and so sometimes it feels a little chaotic <laughs> even to me as a teacher. But it's a lot of fun, and we got that was a fun time through. We had a group, and, and we got to do lots of fun things. And it changes a little bit every time I teach it too, because mm-hmm. you know if it's going to be popular culture, it can't be. Yeah. We try not to lag too many decades behind what's actually going exactly. on out in the world. Though also sometimes the religious stuff that people want to talk about out in the world or is it's difficult, even for somebody as. Um, uh, as sort of immune to this as I am, sometimes the content is hard to bring into a class like that. It can be a little bit too mm. abrupt for some people. Yeah, that's fair. I'm not going to watch American Gods or something in that class, probably. <laughs> <laughs> Alas. Uh, I think that we've told the story on the podcast before, but that class was actually the first time Glenton and I ever interacted. Oh, that's true. Oh, is this where you guys met? You guys met. More or like, less, Yeah. It- it was like we kind of knew of each other and we're in a couple classes, but it was like at the end of my presentation on like contemporary Christian music and DC talk. Oh, like yeah. Glendon, yeah. I remember that one. Glendon came up to me and was like, wow, 
uh, something about Reliant K and yeah then that was the first time something about reliant k this is why are you guys friends well you know reliant k mostly yeah, yeah. as it should Pretty be much bang on <laughs> this rem- it reminds me of like a, a bit in um i don't know if you've ever seen the movie high fidelity the john cusack mm. movie but there's a bit in that movie where the main character talks about how it doesn't actually matter whether you like or other people are not it's just really whether you share the same interests it's not like what you are like it's just what you like that that movies books that's what really matters is the basis of a relationship but of course that More character is also less. really shallow so maybe that's not a good mm. <laughs> uh, i don't know i think there might be something to it <laughs> I mean, there's I a like spectrum I... there there's yeah. A spe- yeah there's some there's something useful on the, yeah no li- liking the same nerdy crap is actually <laughs> Is not a bad thing. Speaking of nerdy crap, I just got an email that says that my my next obsessive part of my knife collection is on its way from Japan. I'm oh, excellent! Oh boy! <laughs> I, oh, it was so funny. What's, I, I, I want to know the backstory of like your knife. I don't want to say obsession, well, but like I mean, that's, your knife. that's a reasonable <laughs> ex- extensive interest in. Yeah, no, that's a obsession's probably my wife would probably agree with obsession at this point. I think. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just I like cooking and um and it's sort of my principal non-academic hobby. Like people are like, what are your hobbies? I'm like, I don't know, I read books a lot and I cook. <laughs> I wanna I always I want to say things like I hike, but that's probably not really true. Um mostly I cook. And so, you know, when you cook, then that then you like to it's like any hobby, gearing up is sort of an interesting part of it. And then once you get into certain kinds of gear and cooking, it really can be a pretty life-changing experience and the most the single most important tool in a kitchen is definitely your knife and so uh if you if you've never tried a handmade high carbon japanese knife then you've never used a knife before in my opinion (laughs) (laughs) i i will confess i don't even think they're that high quality but my roommate came home with like a brand new knife set and i got using it for like bell peppers or something and i was like oh this is what colin feels okay oh oh this cuts things oh what an <laughs> what an interesting experience <laughs> yeah but probably you didn't use a real knife you probably used like some relatively inexpensive machine made yeah, probably. like mass produced which is not the not so like you still you still have you have a religious experience in your future glendon when you get to yeah. use a real I'm, handmade. i'm still in like the cave yeah totally someday you'll you'll get to experience the knife that i have on my way is arguably like the platonic ideal for a for uh <laughs> it's it's the it is the knife that is casting the shadow on on plato's wall in the cave <laughs> oh my god anyways so you guys don't have to put any of that in the podcast. That's just me being weird. Oh, it's it's gonna go. It's, it's <laughs> this is that is the epitome of our podcast. It's just just people being bizarre. Speaking of, so I know you've listened to a couple episodes. I don't know if you've listened like extensively or not. Oh, I think I've I've popped in a couple of times. Uh, which yeah. I, I I do this a lot for um, whenever students kind of produce stuff. I always kind of pop in and take a look around and see what's up and you know. I'm I'm always interested in what you all are doing. So yeah, I've popped in a couple of times. So I've listened to I don't know if I've ever listened to an episode back to back, partly because I um, I don't know if you guys uh, have heard about this, but um, that there's been a pandemic. I think we're calling it at this point Whoa. over the last little while, and so I haven't been at the school for uh, almost a year now since I was teaching in person in the school, and so I just haven't been commuting, and I listen to podcasts on my commute, so mm. I haven't been podcasting uh-huh. that much. Uh, and also, I had we had a fairly uh, 
uh, personally stressful year. My wife had yeah. some health stuff this year. And so, um, and so I also was all the podcast listening I did was in the um, absolutely ridiculous and idiotic category, like, like how did this get made and idiotic podcast like that, just because that's sort of what I had bandwidth for. Um, so I've listened mm -hmm. to bits and pieces of your guys, but I don't think I've ever listened to it cover to cover. I'm trying to think because uh, I remember the I listened to a bunch of the Little Women one. I was picking up a trailer when I was doing mm -hmm. that. And I remember I listened to um, the one about the uh, um, the Ambrose Confessions Instagram account, I was, <laughs> which oh, I, no. I knew a little bit of the, about that drama, but professors don't know the drama nearly as well as people think we do. So it was oh, interesting yeah. to hear that from from a student's point of view too. Oh boy, yeah, that was a that was Sometimes. a time. I don't, I I appreciated your guest's honesty, and 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 I think I probably have like a short list of five people that I think that person is, but who knows? Who knows? It, it's honestly, we thought we could figure it out and we were like way off the mark. Yeah. But keep in mind, I know way more students than you do. I mean, it's true. It's true. Just uh, by definition, but I probably, I, I may very well be wrong too. It's very, mm -hmm. very possible. I have no, and, and, and I don't actually necessarily want to know. Right. No, that's uh, I want that yeah. person to be able to, um, I think it's important for students to be able to speak their minds and speak anonymously if they feel like they have to, if, yeah. if it feels safer for them. So it's fine with me. Yeah. I'm impressed the the page is technically still going. So get submissions. Unlike yeah. a certain fan page. <laughs> oh, is this the other been... meme page on Instagram that I don't trap my, that my wife finds hilarious because she finds it to be a useful opportunity to make fun of me, which is one of her main hobbies. <laughs> No, I think that's a different one. Okay. There's there's like a couple Ambrose meme pages and then there's a Glendon Frank fan page and <laughs> that page has kind of died. It kind of spawned out of the confessions page and then <clears throat> lived a short life and that's funny. But alas. Say lovey. I guess we should jump into the uh, the yeah. topic at hand. Yeah, you gave me an actual topic, not like just shooting the breeze. <laughs> yes. Which is Unusual for the podcast, to say the least. Stream of consciousness. Basically, we're very Glendon like, James Joyce in here. We're like broadly talking about kind of the evangelical church. Um, recently, I don't even know how recently, but there's been a whole thing. Um, big um, church thinker, leader. I don't know how to refer to him, but Ravi Zachariah is like fairly big name. A lot of accusations came out about sexual misconduct and all these. I'm, I'm sure, Colin, you can like talk about that with more clarity than I could. But yeah, basically, um, he's more or less kind of being pushed out of public image because he's just not a great person for all these different reasons. And now people are kind of wrestling with the idea of like, all right, what do we do with the literature that has been left behind? Do we keep it? Do we throw it out? Um, and I know you were advocating for basically like purging the entire um, library of, of Zacharias, which Noah and I got talking about. And I think I I was more or less in favor. Noah was, well, I don't know. You weren't against my it, but. I wasn't I wasn't necessarily against it, but I was trying to push the a devil's advocate view a little bit. And mm. 
It was more so. I, I was thinking less because I could care less about Ravi Zacharias's work. No, that's fair. Honest with you. But like, I was thinking more in general. What do we do with work? Potentially important work or influential work that spawned from bad people or bad systems. Because mm-hmm. you got talking about Aquinas, I remember. Well, I mean, Aquinas was kind of sexist, but like, well, Aquinas you know. also wrote in the twelfth century, thirteenth century. See, and that's so. the thing. Uh, do yeah. we do we put twenty first century morals onto people who lived in prior times? Right. Is that I, something? Yeah, that there are complex. Like, there's lots of moving parts in a conversation like this. Exactly. So, I mean, okay. So, I'm gonna I'm gonna preface everything I'm gonna say. I need I need some disclaimers first. So, first of all, it's super important that everybody understands that this is only me talking. I'm not talking on the behalf of any institution that I'm a part of, whether that's the right. university or denominations or any of that kind of thing. This is just me. Um, now, the second thing I'm gonna preface this with is um, I'm an I'm an expert in biblical studies. And I'm a theologian, so I'm, I'm trained in theology, though I, I probably, I wouldn't call myself an, an expert in historical theology, though I've done an awful lot of historical theology in my studies. Um, and I'm not an expert in evangelicalism, but I'm, I'm a theologian who is, who has been always working out of evangelicalism. So I know the, I know the inside of the terrain quite well, but I know it, I know it like a person who experiences it, right? Like I'm not, a, I don't study evangelicalism academically. So those are all important prefaces and caveats for me. So like, this is me talking. And one of the issues for me with this conversation is there's a number of moving parts. And so Ravi is one thing, right? Um, and Ravi Zacharias, I like your, your, your difficulty introducing him is, is indicative of part of the problem. Like what, what in the world is Ravi Zacharias? <laughs> Um, and Ravi Zacharias was an apologist, a Christian apologist, um, who wrote books and toured and spoke uh, and raised money in order to make purportedly reasoned arguments in favor of Christianity. That was the that was the shtick, right? Sure. Um, which is itself problematic, and that's maybe a secondary conversation. Uh, the the nation the nature of apologetics is like an industry, right? Mm-hmm. But that's purportedly what he was about. Um, but then, like, uh, I'm going to say in four or five years ago now, so like 2016, 2017, it started to come out. Um, and so, like, let, let's be clear before we start there. Um, Zacharias passed away um, this right. this past year, I think, right? About a year ago. Um, and uh, But before that, um, four or five or six years ago, give or take, I can't remember the exact timeline, um, a number of accusations started to come out that um, that he had been engaged in, uh, an inappropriate, um, relationship with a woman who was sort of, um, part of his organ or like adjacent to his organization and kind of in his pastoral care. Um, and the exact details about that were kind of fuzzy and some people, uh, lots and lots of people rushed to his defense and some people were really happy to throw him under the bus, um, and say that he needs to quit. Uh, and and um, one of the things that Zacharias did and his organization did is they really circled the wagons legally. Um, they uh, they used all the legal kind of tools at their disposal um, to stop any um, accusations from coming out to, to such a degree that that the woman in question actually ended up signing a non disclosure agreement oh, wow. um, with uh, which which most people assume also included a um, um, a monetary sum from. Ravi Zacharias International Ministries to her uh, for a non-declosure for to her and her husband for an NDA. Um, and that's, I mean, I should just say right now, in a situation like that, 
when somebody signs an NDA, that's as red a flag as anybody needs, right? Something yeah. that that's basically somebody saying that that they don't want the rest of the story to come out, no matter what, uh, no matter even if it's not true, we don't want it to come out. And that's pretty. That's people should have their their uh, ears open if something like that's going on. Doesn't mean that that something untoward necessarily happened, but it's not a good sign. So um, the NDA thing happens, and then um, a lot of people were pushing uh, at this story, uh, and and in the meantime. Um, Zacharias passed uh, uh, from cancer, I believe. And then there was an extensive investigation posthumously. And in that extensive investigation, it, it's been revealed relatively recently, though I think uh, if anybody who had their, their ears open and their eyes open knew this was coming, that, um, that he had actually been engaged in large-scale, pervasive sexual abuse of, um, of women in a variety of capacities for many, many, many years. Um, and that, and that the, the numbers are like in the scores of people that he abused for sure. Um, so, um, this is not just like a, a one-off. This was a, this was a massive problem. And that leads to the question of then what do we do with, with the, like the legacy of the guy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, is sort of the question you're asking. You're, like the, the, it's not, it's not complicated to figure out, like if Ravi Zacharias was still alive and he, you know, he gets fired and nobody ever listens right. to him again. Like that's that's pretty yeah. well. I would like to think that that's straightforward. I, I'm not so stupid and naive as to think that is straightforward, but it should be straightforward. Ethically speaking, you never get to do this job again. Yeah. But but he 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 isn't alive. This all came out and quite recently after his death. Um. And so then, what do you do with Ravi? And a lot of I've had this conversation with a bunch of people in in person and online and a variety of different forums, and um and people will raise objections to getting rid of um Ravi Zacharias's sort of especially his written legacy or or you know his the, there's lots of video uh footage of him out there all that kind of stuff books and videos and all those kinds of the content stuff he drove and even his ministries too though it's worth noting that Ravi Zacharias uh, ministries in Canada is is shuttering shop they're closing up um mm. because of all this they not the American shop I don't know what's going on with them but the Canadian shop is closing up so then what do you do with all of the stuff he produced is sort of the, the heart of the question. And I don't think this is complicated, to be totally frank. Um, and there's a number of reasons I don't think it's complicated. First of all, um, and this is the least important reason, but it is a stepping stone into the rest of the conversation. Um, Ravi Zacharias hasn't generated any thought that matters. Um, and I don't mean that rudely, but he's not, I mean, people talk about him like he's a theologian. He's not a theologian. He was a, he was a popular apologist. He's not educated in theology. He doesn't have any degrees in theology that are like, like he doesn't have any, um, advanced degrees in theology. He doesn't teach theology. Um, so he was a popular apologist that people liked. Um, and, uh, yes, I, I understand his writing and speaking helps some people in their faith. Um, but but he's not somebody that anybody who's a theologian would see as contributing to the field of theology. So so at one level, I mean, it just doesn't. If nobody ever read a Ravi Zacharias book again, it's just not that big of a loss. That he the stuff that's like, in those, hmm? he just sort of like curated like knowledge that was already there and just delivered it in a nice, fashionable. Yeah, place. he pa- yeah he packaged things that well, and, and arguably things he himself did not entirely understand or package well. <laughs> He, he delivered and packaged those things in, in a really accessible format um, and, and a format people really like. So, I mean, like one of, one of my things is there's just no, there's no real loss here. And, and this is going to go to, and the only reason I'm saying this, I'm not saying this is because this is actually that important. 
um, if he had made a massive contribution, we would still be having this conversation. In my opinion, it would still, I would still be, I would still have serious objections, but the fact that he didn't make a massive contribution changes the nature of the argument a little bit. Um, but it also, it just simplifies it. It's like, eh, it's not a big deal. But the second big issue is the nature of Ravi's work is not, was not, um, um, the presentation of new ideas or or sort of groundbreaking theological work, the nature of his work was convincing people of the truth of Christianity, which he did in large part by leaning upon his own personal reputation and by using kind of like emotive rhetoric that helped to persuade people. So it wasn't even really rational arguments. Like he, he makes purportedly rational arguments, but they're not, they're, I mean, they're well-known arguments. They're not very serious. They're They're relatively easy to deconstruct. Uh, or to problematize at the very least. They're not what I would consider to be like, n- like I would say there are no slam dunk rational arguments <laughs> for for any specific religious position. It's more complicated mm-hmm. than that. Just just like there's no slam dunk rational argument for any philosophical position, like of like Platonism over Aristotelianism. I mean, like there's a reason we've been arguing about it for 2000 years. It's complicated. Um, and similarly, uh, so so it's not, it's not just that he... Um, he isn't making an academic contribution is that the contribution he was, tr- he was purportedly making rests upon the foundation of his reputation and his reputation is mm-hmm. tied to what we as Christians would call a witness. He's, he's being a witness to the Christian faith. And at that point, his ethical behavior is very much integral to the conversation and if his ethical behavior is completely out of step with uh, the religious position he he is arguing for, and if the argument is is it's laid upon the foundation of his ethical reputation, uh, then at that point the entire edifice essentially crumbles. And so my my opinion is his behavior um, is essentially like it essentially implodes his entire history and reputation, and consequently. Uh, all of it needs to just be done away with. Right. Um, and and sort of, um, you know, we just need to um, toss it into the dustbin of history and recognize that it, it was bad. It was just bad. And the only reason for, the, in my opinion, the only reason for remembering it is that we're going to remember it through the lens of his abuse. Right. And, that, and that's a different thing. That's important. And we do need to do that. So, I mean, that's a big sort of big picture summary of the the, the the issue about Ravi, which might be different than other issues. Yeah, I uh, I was curious because I, I remember reading that Twitter thread that you kind of contrasted that with, say, someone like John Vanier, who did contribute something important to the um, well theological work and as well as in the realm of, I believe, Christian social justice. Um, I'm not too familiar with John Vanier's work. I know of his reputation and I've heard a little bit about him. I've never read any of his stuff. Yeah. I mean, so Vanier is, I think Vanier is a real body blow for a lot of people. And and this is important for me because I I have no attachment to Ravi Zacharias emotionally. And so Mm -hmm. it didn't bother me. And also just as a, as a person, like my personality type, I'm not, I don't really get attached to, to the people behind ideas that much. And so I don't have Mm -hmm. heroes in that way. It's just not how my brain works. Um, But Vanier was way more of a body blow for me. Like that, that was much harder. So I don't know. It's been a little while since Vanier. So I don't remember the details in like in technicolor detail. Um, But, 
or if we're going to be more technologically current, like 4K detail, I guess it's probably technological <laughs> technology now. But um, but Vanier's um, failure. So Jean Vanier was um, is he's also dead, and and also his moral failures uh, came up posthumously as well. So there are actually quite a lot of parallels that are interesting for us to think around this issue. And Vanier, um, he was the founder of L'Arche Community, which is a um, a worldwide ministry and and a big thing in Canada. It's worth noting that there are lots of large communities in Canada. Uh, and a lot of Vanier's work had to do with um, uh, creating um, safe relational and spiritual spaces for people with disabilities, uh, including people with very significant developmental disabilities. Uh, and a lot of his work is important and, and was very, very helpful. And he did lots of spiritual work sort of around that too. Um, but then it came out after his passing that he engaged in some sexual relationships. And on the one hand, you know, that's not, you know, the fact that the guy had sex with somebody is, is relatively uninteresting, I think. But a lot of the, it was definitely in this case, sexual abuse, where he was manipulating people into sexual relationships and manipulating uh, a person into a sexual relationship by leveraging his role as a spiritual advisor and pastor, and actually even leveraging theological language to get somebody into a spiritual or I mean to into a sexual relationship that was that was abusive and that and that wasn't really consensual. Um, and that's really not okay. And so the first thing I want to I think we need to say is we need to we need to um to not downplay that and to see it as mm-hmm. non-negotiably that's sexual abuse. Um, right. and again, if if Vanier was still around, you know, he he gets fired, he gets removed from all of his boards, he he never gets to do this job again. But how we, we found out after he passed. And so the question is, what do we do with his legacy? And it is a, it's a little bit different, but not that different, actually, I think. So on the one hand, Vanier um, ha- contributed a lot in terms of, um, to a certain degree, in terms of theology, more in the realm of spirituality, of like spiritual practice. But mm-hmm. but like you were saying, Noah, like way more in the realm of like these communities, these established, these organizations that he helped to found and the work that those organizations do, which, which is, I think, kind of non-negotiably good work. Um, and uh, a couple of things I'll say. First of all, the re- the response of those organizations was very different than the response of the Ravi Zacharias Interna- International um, Ministries organizations, uh, where Arzim mostly was circling the wagons and pursuing legal recourse to try and protect themselves and their brand. Um, the various groups associated with Vanier were much more forthcoming, and they instigated the investigations. And when the investigations, when the results came out, they published them. Um, of their own free will, uh, without being forced to, and um, and have been uh, willing to denounce Vanier's behavior as a consequence. So those, like, that's different, right? Those are two different things. Um, if an organization says, no, 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 didn't happen, didn't happen, didn't happen, well, I guess kind of it happened, well, I guess it happened, well, we it happened, but it doesn't matter. That's really different than an organization saying, um, look, everybody, you don't know this, but our founder did uh, did bad things, and that's and that's a real problem, and and we really don't know what to do now. Um, that those responses are really different, and the differences matter, ethically speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it comes to Vanier's work, do we keep it? I mean, do we continue to read him? Because he wrote all sorts of stuff on spirituality and spiritual practice. Mm-hmm. And here again, and this is a position that probably some people are going to think is too harsh, and even some of my colleagues are going to think is too harsh. Even people who want to, who are happy to dump Ravi's work are probably not going to take quite this position, but I think it's perfectly fine to, again, 
consign Vanier's work to the dustbin of history and say, we're just not going to, we're not going to use it. Um, because in a, in a way that's quite similar to Zacharias, Vanier's work is grounded in his purported ethical and spiritual position. And when you remove that, right, like it's sort of grounded on his own personal holiness to a certain degree. And we can talk about the, how problematic that is to do, <laughs> to do things like that. But it is grounded kind of in that. And so, you know, if, if, that, if the ground has been taken out from under us on that regard, then, then what did he really give us? And, and another thing that's worth saying is the Christian tradition is long and broad. And not reading somebody isn't going to be debilitating for somebody's spiritual development. You can not, you can never read John Vanier and be fine. It's not, it's not that big of a deal. Uh, and so given what happened and what it means for his legacy, then I think again, um, I, I don't think that large communities should shutter their doors because their work is obviously valuable and it is not grounded in Vanier's person and personality, which is different from Ravi Zechariah's ministries. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and also because they're, they're upfront about the problems there. Um, but I don't think, I think we can do without his work, his written work without collapsing. Um, so, I mean, Vanya is an interesting, an interesting counterexample, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and one of the things I think it's really important to do is, um, and this goes to a broader cultural problem. Everybody's super happy to pile on the, the guy they don't like in the tradition Mm -hmm. and much, much more reticent to pile on the guy that, that they were sort of a fan of. And let me just say, I was a fan of Jean Vanier. I love Jean Vanier. And I love, I like, I all sorts of wonderful interviews where, he, and people would quote him all the time, beautiful, heartwarming, spiritually enriching stuff. But you can't get it away from his legacy now. And we, we just need to be honest with ourselves about that. So if you can't, mm-hmm. if, you, if you can torpedo the, the, uh, the guy you don't like, you, you need to be able to torpedo the guy you do like too. Right. It's sort of non-negotiable in my opinion. Otherwise, it really is just a brand of intellectual dishonesty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I guess, like, just to clarify if I'm hearing you right, like, a lot of a lot of the problem with these two people in particular is, like, so much of their crimes is rooted in what, yeah, like, in, in that kind of, uh, I guess, like, spiritual popularity almost. Um, that their works were influenced by and like helped curate. And so it's all kind of like tied together and it, you just kind of have to gut the whole thing. Yeah. Like I would say like the, the, the criminal acts and the ethical violations that they committed are directly and materially related to the, to the work yeah. that they were giving us. Um, and so you can't pull them apart, right? You just can't. Which is not the same as everybody, though, right? Because, like, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, Noah was referencing a Twitter thread uh, where, where me and a number of people were sort of arguing around this. Um, and you can give other counterexamples that are, that are also interesting. Um, and I think, like, like, Luther is one that I like to bring up. I think Luther is mm-hmm. an interesting example. Because Luther's later writings especially are famously anti-Semitic. Like, hor- horrifying, horrifying anti-Semitism. Um, and really inexcusable. And so then the question is, well, okay, if we're going to dump Ravi Zacharias and we're going to dump uh, Jean Vanier, are we going to dump Martin Luther too? Uh, and this is where I think we can start talking about yeah. categorical differences um, between um, various kinds of theologians. So like, first of all, 
you really can't have a conversation about Christianity in the 21st century without reference to, say, the Reformation, uh, which Luther is utterly integral to. You can't talk about the Reformation and not talk about Luther. That's crazy. Like, it can't be done. It'd be like talking about the Reformation and not talking about Erasmus or Calvin or Zwingli or who, I mean, there's a bunch of guys. You just, you have to, or you can't have an honest conversation about the historical event. Mm. Uh, but also that historical event, it has like fundamentally shaped the culture of um, uh, of the world at large and especially the Western world ever since, like for 500 years. It's been, it's one of the, the sort of like foundational historical events um, that, that, and it's not just for Christian thought, like it, it goes across the board for, for sort of all social, cultural, philosophical thinking in, in the West in like the last 500 years. And so we can't, we can't dump Luther, mm -hmm. but what we can do is we can contextualize Luther. And, and I don't mean the term, sometimes people use the term contextualize, um, as a way of saying excuse. Like, oh, he was just a person of his time and blah, blah. No, I don't mean that at all. What I mean is we can actually draw out Luther's anti-Semitism and look at it and say, yes, this does develop. It's part of his thought. It is, it is in a certain sense integral to his thought. And it has actually um, had very significant after effects in Western Christianity that have been incredibly damaging. Um, and and one, like I'm never going to say something as simplistic as, um, Luther's anti-Semitism causes the Holocaust, but there are historical relationships between, um, the fact that anti-Semitism is, uh, well, it's, I mean, it's all over Europe at, in the Luther and before Luther's time, lifetime and during Luther's lifetime. But the fact that Luther, um, does not purge it or excise it from his theology and that he actually even pushes it out farther. Um, and it, it trickles its way out into Lutheran theology broadly, and it trickles its way out into Northern European culture in a really significant way. And then those things do start to snowball after a while, and they create um, the philosophical conditions uh, that eventually will lead to 20th century anti-Semitism and create environments that certain kinds of horrible thinking can grow in. Uh, and then in a very complicated way, um, there are after effects that are truly, truly evil. But that's what I mean by contextualize, right? I don't mean, mm -hmm. so we can't get rid of Luther because you, I mean, getting rid of Luther would be like getting rid of Plato. It's just silly. It's impossible. Um, it doesn't mean you have to read Luther or study Luther, but we can't pretend he didn't affect Western culture. And so then the question is, how do we appropriately and consciously engage um, Luther's sort of ethically questionable statements uh, with Luther's theology. And how do we then say we're going to keep these parts of Lutheran theology, maybe we, we actually can salvage or would like to try to salvage. These parts of Lutheran theology might be, I mean, they, some parts might be beyond salvaging. And that's an important component is that um, we can't assume just because we're not going to dump Luther that we're going to continue to maintain every right. piece of Luther's theology, if you know what I mean. And so I don't know if I'm mm -hmm. if I'm explaining what I what I think is an important distinction, um, but that's the way. Like I mean, this is what, the way I think about these things um, is that there is a, yeah. a categorical difference here. We kind of shift gears after this point, and in an effort to promote audience interaction, before we get to the end of the podcast, that I know the vast majority of you will never reach, I want to ask you a question that we never really asked 
Colin, and maybe we should have, and maybe there's nuance here, or maybe there isn't. Maybe this isn't even a, a worthwhile question. But do you think someone can continue to read or, say, reference or utilize the work of someone like Jean Vanier and not be doing something wrong or not be disrespecting the victims or glorifying Vanier? Because I feel like the way we talked about it in the podcast, it was like, yeah, it's definitely okay. We can get rid of everything. We can get rid of Vanier's work. We don't need to use it, utilize it. No one is going to be missing out on anything that massive or that important by not reading Vanier. But what do we say to someone who does continue to do so? And is it possible to continue to do so, to read, to utilize, whatever, um, in a nuanced fashion, in a way that respects the fact, respects the victims, and respects the fact that Vanier has been an abuser? Is there a way to continue to continue to read a reference's work? I want to ask you all that. Let us know your thoughts on Twitter. This is something that I kind of got thinking about in regards to, like, when Noah and I were talking about Ravi Zacharias, because... Um, it, it seems to me in a sense that like importance is kind of determined by history and importance is determined by the later generations. Like there is a reality where the church clings so tightly to Vanier and um, Zacharias, and it just becomes this huge part of like the future of the evangelical church. And I think that's kind of where this conversation becomes interesting to me is like, we're seeing like these cases of sexual misconduct everywhere in the evangelical church. And what do we do in the present to make sure that isn't just our legacy in the future? Like what becomes of the future of the evangelical church? How do we kind of respond to this in the present so that our future is, you know, like not incredibly, incredibly toxic. Yeah. And see, I actually think that this is the the important and helpful line of questioning, it seems to me, right? The the should we read that Ravi Zacharias or not? Um actually actually feels like a um like a red herring to me. Um it's like a false trail. It's not gonna it's not gonna get us anywhere particularly helpful. It just gets into this sort of boring conversations about cancel culture, uh, quote unquote cancel culture, whatever that is. Um but more interestingly to me is what endemic problems in evangelicalism can we discover by observing the reality of what happened with Ravi Zacharias? And the answer is, is that this is, as you've said, this is part of a broad pattern in evangelicalism in North America in the last 50, 60, 80 years. Um, if you want a really good history of some of the contributing factors to this problem, I would strongly recommend to you um, a book by um, uh, an historian named Kristen Cobes Dumay. Uh, it's spelled Dumez, M-E-Z is how it ended, but it's pronounced Dumay. Um, she's written a book called Jesus and John Wayne. Right. Which yeah. is a really important book. Um, it's been very widely read. It's winning all sorts of prizes and, and it's very well sold deserved. out everywhere. <laughs> it's really hard to find. It's, out, it's I think it's on its second or third printing now already. It's only about a year old. Um, um, but it it is, um what she does in that book is she chronicles the history of sort of the nexus of uh, issues of gender, power, politics, money, and sort of leadershipy kinds of things in evangelicalism um, from kind of the 50s to the present. Um, so for the vast 50 or 60 years, basically, she runs a, about a half century of history. Uh, and she does it mostly, she, she actually doesn't make arguments very much in the book. She mostly just describes events. This happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. But it snowballs up into a pretty um, 
indisputable argument that there is a really dangerous sort of theology of several things together, uh, gender, power, uh, political influence, leadership, and sort of other things that kind of surround that nexus. Money is definitely an issue here. That there's a there's a, a set of theologies and ideologies that are sort of linked together in evangelicalism around those issues um, that have made certain versions, at least of evangelicalism, um, fundamentally dangerous uh, in the in the early 21st century, and arguably heretical, and uh, and historically um, incredibly problematic. Um, now, this is not a, the same thing as saying that evangelicalism is is trash from top to bottom. That's not what I mean. And that's not what she argues. She's actually got her argument is actually very fine grained, I think. But but she is picking up on an intersection of a number of things that we, we really need to not lose in this conversation about Zacharias, because there's one of the real dangers in this conversation about Zacharias is to there's two things that they really need to not do. First of all, we can't make it just about Ravi. Um, and make it only like this is one person's individual personal sin, and and that that's the total import of it. No, 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 no. This is this is about much more than that because Ravi's position, Ravi's power position, is what facilitated his extensive abuse, and there's an entire structure that covered up or or was willfully blind to his behavior, um, all of which there were clues of long ago, I think. Um, and that, and so we need to be able to delve into the structural issues because, because people don't do the things that Ravi did all by themselves, right? That they're, that they end up being sort of necessarily connected to other things. So that's one thing. And the second thing is, and this is related to the structural issue, um, to see Ravi's sin as a sexual sin only is to fundamentally understand the nature of sexual misconduct and abuse and to fundamentally misunderstand the nature of his specific crimes, because they are also deeply, deeply wrapped up in power dynamics. Yeah. And that's a really big deal. And so one of the things that, that I, and I, and quite a number of other people I know want to, we want to focus the con the post Ravi conversation on what are the structures and ideas and ideologies that facilitated his abuse or that facilitated his protection, or that even facilitate the attempt to rehabilitate his image, or the image of his organizations afterwards. Um, and, and a lot of this sort of comes down to this sort of weird, like gender masculinity industrial complex that has grown up around some versions of Christianity that are, that are I think, um, historically indefensible and theologically indefensible and really, really dangerous. And so I think that that's why your question, Glennon, is a good question to ask. The question is not, why did Ravi abuse um, uh, a number of women? Though that's helpful to ask that. But it's, why did he do it? How did he do it? How did it happen? Who protected him? Why did people keep protecting him? Why did the NDA thing happen? Why do they continue to... They, they, the, um, his family still will not release that woman from that non-disclosure agreement. Why? Why, why, why? And, and I'm not, again, I'm not just condemning individual people. I want to, I, I want us to think about culturally and structurally why we defend perpetrators like Ravi Zacharias or like Jean Vanier. Like, why do we do that? And, which, you know, and another, like another instructive thing for us to think through is, and this is a little while ago now, but if you think through the, um, 
the breaking of the story of um, of sexual abuse of minors in the Catholic Church a few years ago. Right. It, it's a good analog because again, it wasn't just a priest or two. It was a huge number of people. And there was a broad systemic cover-up um, that went really high up, probably higher than anybody's willing to admit, in the Catholic Church. Um, and I and I still don't think that's something that everybody's reckoned with the way that they need to reckon with. Um, but if you don't reckon with the root institutional and structural causes of evil, you've essentially doomed yourself to repeat that pattern down the road a little bit, right? So that's those are the conversations that I think are more interesting to have. One uh, where this conversation led between Glendon and I when we were talking was Glendon kind of jokingly suggested, "Why don't we just kill the evangelical church?" <laughs> and and I mean, I, I, while Glendon said it jokingly, there is an argument, and there are people mm-hmm. who would certainly argue that not only should the evangelical church be killed or destroyed or annihilated, perhaps. Um, but that Christianity should be annihilated or any specific religion should be annihilated because the harm that's been done is more significant than the good that's been done. Um, And now I would push back against that with an argument of you can try to destroy evil, you can try to destroy a specific instance of evil and it will still... Mm-hmm. Something will still rise up in its place. It just doesn't work. Um, mm-hmm. You could destroy evangelicalism. There would be a new evangelicalism in what um, a few decades. Um, and evangelicalism has arisen also out of various other movements of the past that no longer really exist. So it's not. It's you can't just destroy something that is wrong or that is evil. But my question is then, what do you do? with evangelicalism how do we take what we learn from instances such as with ravi zacharias or if we want to talk about more christianity as a whole instances with the catholic church with john vanier what do we do with what we learn and how do we reform how do we make the changes necessary in these institutions that prevent these kind of sins of power is that a good way to describe it sins of power from happening in the in in the future yeah so i mean i think that these are the interesting questions to ask um at a certain level um getting rid of evangelicalism or christianity is a bit of of an absurd notion because we're not talking about um like a a simple small scale institution, right? Like a, like a school or a, or a nonprofit org or something like that, right? Like getting rid of Ravi Zacharias international ministries is one conversation. Um, And that's, that's something you can reasonably talk about, right? Like it has a, it has a post, Mm -hmm. it has a postal code and and it has a, a tax number and, you know, it's got a board of directors theoretically that nobody knows the names of the people on it, but still they exist. So like there are ways of getting rid of those institutions. Getting rid of evangelicalism is like, we're going to get rid of, you know, we're going to get rid of Western culture. Like, I don't even, I don't even know what that (laughs) means. Right. Um, But having said that, um, it is really important to ask the question, um, what do these, what is the impact of these um, revelations? What do they mean 
for the future of a serious conversation about the role of Christianity and about the nature of Christianity going forward. So, so mm-hmm. whereas, whereas I don't think that we can get anything really out of Ravi's books in terms of our overarching theology, I absolutely think that Ravi's story needs to be part of our story about ourselves in the 20th and 21st century um, in the sense of we need to have a, a whole chapter in that book in our hearts and minds uh, about the failures, the broad failures of Christianity in North America in this period and globally, not just Christ- North America happened all over the place. Like, an, and another, another person we could throw into this conversation would be Bill Hybels, whose, um, whose particular transgressions are obviously um, on a different scale than Zacharias's, but they're no less heinous and they're no less connected to, um, to power and celebrity, right? And so I think the real thinking we need to do is we need to think through um, what we're going to do about the underlying structural issues that facilitate and would continue, continue to facilitate um, either the production of people who will perpetrate these kinds of sins or the protection of people who are or have, um, or even, even the notion of protecting brands, quote unquote, brands that relate to this. And this is a place where actually certain ideas from Protestant Christianity are probably helpful, in my opinion. There's a, there's a phrase, a Latin phrase in, in Protestant Christianity, semper reformandum. Uh, semper reformanda um, means that the, um, the church must always be reforming, the reformed mm-hmm. and always reforming church. Um, it's a way of saying that the, that the church must understand itself um, as in a process of, con- of continual self-reflection and reform, um, to take seriously critiques, uh, to think through their consequences, and to make necessary adjustments. Um, and so one of the things that we, I think, must learn, um, and Zacharias's um, case is a... Is a a shock to the system, but a helpful shock uh, in this sense. I mean, that's a terrible way to put it. It makes it sound like there's good that can come from this. That's not what I mean. It's a, it's a terrible event um, that should cause very serious reflection. And that reflection um, needs to be focused on, um, I, I would start with the cult of celebrity in evangelicalism. Yeah. So like evangelicalism participates really heavily in celebrity culture, which is a real problem in, in, the world generally, though I think particularly in North America, right? And this is not a Christian problem. It's generated across the board for everybody in North America. Um, But we've really bought it, right? We've really bought in all the way on it. So another really good example of this problem recently is, uh, what's his name? The Hillsong guy, Carl Lentz. Right. Who, again, we're not talking with him about um, sexual abuse, but we're talking about in, uh, marital infidelity, and we're talking about what sounds like really significant, probably financial irregularities, and definitely like um, a culture of um, sort of abuse and fear in the in- inner workings of the church that, that he was a part of in New York. Um, and all of that's related to celebrity. It's, it's, you know, it, uh, one of the, one of the ways I try to drive at this for people is, is I drive straight at Donald Trump with this. Cause I actually think Donald right. Trump is, is he, pr- he is a product of this. Um, and he also, um, in a certain sense, um, he is, I mean, Donald Trump is, is people saying the quiet part out loud. If we can use that phrase, <laughs> it's Donald Trump is the external revelation of a bunch of stuff that was already happening. And, and in particular is what we're talking about here. If you think about the Access Hollywood tape um, and, and his just 
blatant confessions that he engages in sexual abuse and violence and and rape, really, um, and that everybody was totally fine with that. Um, it all comes down to that one phrase that he says on that tape, when you're famous, they let you do it. And that right there, in my mind, that is the crux of what we need to talk about. Um, because if Ravi, if Ravi's not famous and rich, this doesn't happen in the same way, yeah. right? If Carl Lentz isn't famous, that doesn't happen the same way. If Bill Hybels isn't famous, if Jean Vanier isn't lauded as this sort of living saint, these things don't happen in the same way. Now, that doesn't mean that abuses don't happen and we have to have another conversation about that too, right? That's a parallel conversation about... Um, about sexual abuse, which every church should be having, and a lot of them are having in a serious way, and I think that's important. But the bigger structural um, ideological conversation in my mind is where are all of these overlapping issues? Where is the middle of that Venn diagram? Where is all that Hmm. coming together? And I think it comes together around power, gender, and celebrity and leadership. Yeah. And if you can't push at those, you're this is not a problem we're going to fix. Mm-hmm. Mm. This reminds me of I tweeted this out, oh man, a year, year and a half ago. Um there was this like weird dating profile thing on Instagram for like some Christian church in Calgary and someone had advertised that this guy knew what he wants and would take it like david and Bathsheba, as if that was a good thing and it makes me wonder if how a lot of evangelicals or christians in general read and preach that story is also tied to this celebrity um culture that if you're famous yeah you can do what you want you can take what you want and 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 there's almost a sense that we want people to do that yeah Exactly. Yeah. It's like a, as if it's a, a virtue mm-hmm. in some weird twisted way. Yeah. Yeah. The, the David thing is a, is a big issue for me here. Um, it's almost a dead giveaway <laughs> that you're in a problematic area of, um, of this conversation. If somebody responds to, um, to you by saying, well, but we're not going to cancel King David and look at all the terrible things he did. This, mm-hmm. tell me, this tells me a number of things immediately. First of all, it tells me they're not a very careful reading of Samuel, First uh, and Second Samuel, because First and Second Samuel is not actually a uniformly pro-David text. Um, it, it's a real complicated text, right? And it has some very pro-David components to it. It's probably built by a variety of people over a long period of time. And some of the source documents are, are basically Davidic propaganda. But it's also heavily critical of David at a number of places. And, and a lot of that criticism, especially, is in the second half of the story after yeah. he takes the kingship. Um, it's essentially like the, the, the book of 2 Samuel from 2 Samuel. It depends on where you want to go, but 11 at least, but arguably before chapter 11 from chapter 4 or 5, 2 Samuel is relentlessly critical of David um, and problematizes David almost on every page. To the point where David's behavior is really what what ends up dissolving the um, the Israelite kingdom under the reign of Solomon mm-hmm. or after the reign of Solomon. That that between David's misdeeds and Solomon's misdeeds, we eventually come to the dissolution of the unified kingdom. So, I mean, one of the issues here is when people say, "Well, what about David?" 
um, I immediately know that they're they're not reading our situation through the lens of Samuel. They're reading Samuel through the lens of North American right. masculinity mm-hmm. and a toxic version of North American masculinity, um, and that they're reading David poorly, frankly. Um, so, like, that's it, one thing to say about this. Yeah, and it, it misses the fact that that story, like, baked into the story itself, has Nathan, a prophet, yeah. come in and call out David to his core. Like, mm-hmm. that and is the beautiful. consequences. Like the yeah. consequences of David's actions are horrifying yeah. and they're horrifying. And this is important. They're horrifying at the individual level. They involve his own family tragedies, but they're horrifying for the entire nation because they involve these massive, terrible things that God does to the whole nation as a result of immediately of his sin, but also at a, at a, at a broader level, the results of the terrible things that happen in the royal family because of this. Mm-hmm. Like, this is what I mean. Like, like Samuel is not, the book of Samuel is not neutral about this question. The, the book of Samuel is really, um, is profoundly critical of David. And yeah, the Nathan part is very important and people always want to skip over that. Um, but they don't recognize the way that Nathan himself frames the problem. When Nathan talks about um, what has happened with Bathsheba, he frames the problem as violence against Bathsheba yeah. and, and violence against Uriah. Now, of course, all of this is all this also exists within an ancient Near Eastern, ancient Israelite cultural framework. And one of the things I always try to tell people is that you have to make a distinction between um, what Scripture teaches as a whole and the underlying cultural assumptions of Scripture, because the underlying cultural assumptions of Scripture that's just the language, and we're, we're not going to keep that all of that. Um, we're going to even push against some of it, as the Bible itself does. Um, so just because uh, David kind of doesn't get deposed because of this, um, that's that's not something that the book of Samuel is arguing in favor of. The book of Samuel accepts that as a necessary thing because it's, it's David is an ancient Near Eastern king. You don't depose ancient Near Eastern kings because of sexual impropriety. That's not a thing. Um, and so that was never going to happen to David. Um, but that does, you can't take that as um, as an argument against deposing such sexual predators yeah um it's it's just we're we're applying bad lenses to the text when we do those kinds of things and as well i feel like there's like diving into how evangelicals and maybe some christians as a whole but i want to focus specifically on evangelicalism because it seems to be more prominent there's mm-hmm. this idolization of kings in the bible from david to solomon to name your king and this idea of kingship as being something that is good and something that is um, I, I, beneficial, something that is necessary. And so they they idolize these people and believe that they need to be pleased. And in some ways, it's how they treat Jesus as well, that Jesus is a king that needs to be pleased or praised or and in a way to use language that I've learned from Peter Rollins, they, they idolize Jesus. They make Jesus into an idol. So I think there's this, there's this misunderstanding of kingship in the Bible and this idolization of it that also contributes to this celebrity culture and in, in evangelicalism, especially I'm, because I think of Hillsong, I think of Bethel, I think of their music and the way kingship is used in their lyrics and in their preaching. Yeah, yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, and I think that I do think when you raise things like um, 
the music you find in popular evangelical worship groups like like Bethel or Redmond or, or Hillsong, um, they, they all have a really strong triumphalist flavor. Hmm. Um, uh, we're going to have this great king. This great king is going to be on our side. We're going to beat our enemies. Um, the world will not overcome us, these kinds of notions. Um, all of which lead people to engage in um, the sort of myth of the persecuted hegemon, like the, this, this experience where they feel like they're being persecuted because they're not always being praised, um, which, which is really common again in evangelicalism, the notion that evangelicals are persecuted in some sense, which is, which is empirically false. Um, there, there's really no way to make the argument that evangelicals, um, are persecuted. They're, they're rel- like, for example, in the United States of America, they're, they are statistically a relatively small voting block and they have massive influence, um, over, especially the right wing, uh, pol- political party. Um, now the, the kingship thing in the old, in the new, in their, well, I was going to say in the old Testament, and the new Testament, but in the scriptures, generally the kingship thing is really interesting. And particularly when we come to Jesus, um, because, um, there's a, there's a, a sort of pervasive set of metaphors in the Gospels. Um, let's deal with Matthew specifically, right? Matthew's Gospel is a good example of this. Um, where Matthew is making the extended and intentional case throughout his, his story about Jesus, that Jesus is this messianic figure, an unexpected kingly priestly figure um, who is supposed to come. But Matthew is also very intentionally um, problematizing that um, at a variety of points. And some of the most interesting points where Matthew's doing that are kind of germane to our conversation. So if you think about like the, um, the transfiguration scene in Matthew, so that leading up to the transfiguration scene, there's a bunch of who is this Jesus guy kind of stories and talking like, like John the Baptist saying, are you really the Messiah? And then Jesus quoting Isaiah back to him, you know, what do you think? Do we think I really am the Messiah based on what you're seeing? Um, and then we have the, the transfiguration and we have the, the encounter between Jesus and the, and the, um, uh, well, the, the encounter between Jesus and the disciple happens right before the transfiguration where, where Peter finally says to Jesus, you are the Messiah, right? Like some people say you're Elijah. Some people say you're this or that. And Jesus says, well, who do you say I am? And, and Peter says, I'm, well, you're the Messiah. And then Jesus immediately says to him, yes, that's correct. And the Messiah must suffer and die. And then mm-hmm. Peter says, well, that can't happen. And Jesus says, well, get behind me, Satan. Um, in other words, uh, Peter recognizes Jesus as Messiah, but he has an image in his mind of exactly the kind of thing you're talking about, Noah, where he is a, he's an image of this triumphant king in his mind, uh, mm-hmm. like a powerful eschatological figure or political figure who's going to take over and kick out the Romans and take charge. Um, and Jesus challenges that with his, his comments about dying, which Peter cannot accept. He can't process that. Uh, and so then he gets in trouble with Jesus. And then immediately after that, from Matthew, we have the transfiguration where Jesus is seen as divine. And, and part of the reason Matthew organizes the story that way is to make sure his audience understands that Jesus is right and Peter is wrong. That, mm-hmm. that Jesus is, like, like Peter is recognizing him as Messiah, but doesn't understand what that means. And then flowing out of that, you immediately go to the, tri- the quote-unquote triumphal entry where Jesus comes into Jerusalem and he comes in with these sort of upended symbols of kingship, right? Instead of a big war horse, he rides a little donkey. Uh, mm-hmm. Instead of having uh, a crown or having weapons, he's basically a homeless guy riding in on a donkey. Um, and the crowd still 
cries out Hosanna before him. And then we move from there into the, the Jerusalem scenes and he condemns the leadership and that gets him to a lot of trouble. And he ends up, we have the passion scenes where we go to where's Jesus' crucifixion. And Matthew lays this out, the other gospel writers too, but Matthew's really overt about this. He lays this out so that progressively what you have with Jesus' crucifixion is a coronation, that Jesus is being coronated. He's being placed on his throne and his throne is a cross. These are all meant to be theological comments on the nature of um, Christian witness and um, and leadership, I guess, if we want to use that term in the world, that the that the um, the king we follow, we do follow a king, but the king we follow is um, is a homeless man who was crucified, right? We we follow a king who failed in every sort of discernible sense externally, um, and this tracks into Paul's letters too. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, you guys have been in enough classes with me to hear me harp on about Philippians chapter two, probably. But Philippians chapter two is sort of the one of the big keystone texts for Paul's Christology, where Paul talks about what it means for Christians to be in a relationship with one another. How, how can you have a unified relationship with other Christians? Um, and he points to Jesus self-emptying, to the fact that Jesus yeah. empties uh, himself and takes on the, the nature of a servant. Um, even though he's God, he becomes a slave. Uh, and sacrifices himself to death, even death on a cross. Um, all these things are meant to suggest, and this is pervasive in the New Testament. It's important to say this is pervasive. This is not like, I'm not cherry picking texts. <laughs> you could you could basically drop the New Testament open to almost any point, and you're going to get some version of this. Um, that the basic ethic of Christianity is self-sacrifice for the benefit of others. But the problem is, in North America, that that runs almost exactly against the grain of the pervasive of the sort of the pervading culture especially conser- pervading conservative culture and here we could do lots of things right we could like yeah. oh this is where like uh you could bring somebody like ayn rand into the conversation right <laughs> with uh, who, who's ayn rand is like this hero of the of, of the religious right in the united states which is bonkers because she's not just an atheist, she despises Christianity or despised Christianity, uh, but in large part because she saw the goal of human beings as like the the single triumphant hero of history was her great like that's her her ideal person, and that that's and she understood. I'm glad she understood that that's incommensurate with Christianity. That Christianity is not seeking to become a great leader. Mm-hmm. Christianity is is asking what to what can I die for the benefit of the people around me? How can I serve? How can I, um, how can I give of myself? In what way can I empty myself? Because the, the path of Christianity is supposed to be uh, becoming like Christ, right? Uh, we'll use the term divinization or indivinization sometimes in, in theological terms to talk about the believer becoming like Christ. This runs completely counter to the to all the things you described there, Noah, right? Like that just doesn't fit with triumphalism. It doesn't fit with great leaders who are out there, um, you know, showing off their sneakers or their awesome cars. It doesn't fit with uh, with Ravi flying around the globe on a private jet. Uh, it doesn't fit with 50,000 person stadiums uh, and million dollar sound systems. Like it just doesn't fit with any of that stuff. Um, and And that's a drag. Because those are all the metaphors for winning in our culture. Yeah. And people want to be on the winning team. 
Um, but, but Christianity isn't a winning religion. Winning isn't the point. In large part because we would say that, you know, Christ already won and that we participate in the victory of Christ over evil, but but really because winning in the terms of North American culture just aren't part of the conversation for Christianity, in theory, right? In theory. Yeah. And this is where I, I kind of begin to to jokingly call for the death of evangelicalism. Because like it, I I sit back and I look at like the modern far right conservative church. And I, I think maybe Zacharias will be one, but I feel like there's going to be some sort of crisis point where it's either like some, some watershed moment. I don't know. Like something that I look at a lot at is like LGBTQ rights. I feel like that's going to split the church in some way because all the conservatives or or, or all the, like the, the far evangelical conservatives that I've talked to have this kind of attitude, that like, this is a fad and it'll go away. And it's like, no, this is the future of the church that you're dealing with, but okay. Um, And yeah, like I, it's, it's just something I sit back and think about. And I'm like, how, how does American evangelicalism as we understand it continue for like any significant length of time and still represent the body of Christ? Yeah. Um, a few years ago, I was listening to an interview with um, Stanley Hauerwas and Will Williman. So I don't know if you guys know Hauerwas and Williman. They're, they're quite famous American theologians, uh, Methodist theologians, Hauerwas especially. And they wrote a book. I think, this, I think this interview was the 20th anniversary of the book, the 25th anniversary of the book. The book is called Resident Aliens. It's a very famous, very important book. It was really formative for me and for a lot of people I know, too. It was a big deal. And in this interview, Stanley Hauerwas is, is this famously spicy, spicy theologian. He's, I love Stan Hauerwas. He's awesome. People often ask, like, like who would be a body blow to you if they, if they turned out to be one of these horrible, abusive tools? And if that came about Stan, Stan Hauerwas, that would, be, that would be a real drag. I'd be bummed out by that. But also, I would just move on because he's just a guy. Anyways, but Stan Hauerwas in this interview... Um, he said some things about American Christianity that I thought were really interesting. Uh, and that's sort of our germane to your point. Um, he said, I'm, I'm not going to probably quote exactly. So he says in this interview, he says in this interview, God is destroying Christianity in America and we damn well deserve it. Mm. Yeah. So that's a fascinating thing to say if you have a sense of history and particularly a sense of, um, of certain portions of history in the Old Testament. Um, and one of the reasons I, I have that quote at hand is because in my notes for the commentary I'm writing on Ezekiel right now, because um, Ezekiel is a book about God systematically annihilating all of the structures of the nation that he built, right? Like systematically breaking down everything about Judah and Israel that that is part of God's covenant relationship with those people, um, killing them to save them in a certain sense. Like mm-hmm. destroying eventually and to the point where 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 this will lead to exile, um, in order to like dis, dismantling in order to um, to rebuild again. So when you get to the later chapters, very very late chapters in Ezekiel, you'll finally get to this sort of God rebuilding things. Though intriguingly, God sort of just does it Himself and with very little input from anybody else. She's like, well, you guys couldn't do this. So do it my damn self now. Um, so it's sort of this fascinating end of the book. But I think that's what Hauerwas is sort of getting at. The notion that Christianity will die is absurd. Mm-hmm. 
Christianity is not going to die. Christianity is the most pervasive religion on the planet. Christianity is is doing relatively well. Um, But um, the death of evangelicalism, um, there are two versions of that story. There's a, there's a version of this story where, where um, we make ourselves obsolete through our ethical failures, pervasive, continuous ethical failures. Uh, and by ethical failures, I don't mean failures in the eyes of the people around us. I mean failures according to our own standards, which is what all these failures are. That's one way that evangelicalism dies. But another way that evangelicalism dies is that evangelicalism can die to itself if it wants to. Mm-hmm. Or that we can part- we can try to participate in death to self. And we can try to say, we can recognize that our searching after power has been evil and, and uh, antichrist, I would even say. That we have been submitting ourselves to the powers and the principalities and the prince of the power of the air, these terms for Satan that Paul has in Ephesians. That we've been participating in these demonic movements, trying to get power for ourselves. And that we can confess that. And then we can allow God to enact God's judgment upon us for it because we deserve that. And we can let these things die Mm -hmm. and we can just become people who attempt to seek after Christ instead of trying to win cultural conversations or be in charge of things. Yeah. I think about that kind of historical perspective a lot, both like in terms of biblical history and also just, the history of the church, because it, it always seems to me that anytime um, the people of God try to make, I'm going to use the term Christian, even though that's not, it goes back much further than that, but like a quote unquote Christian nation, a nation under God. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm in the Kalis class. So like the, the language of empire comes to mind with Walter Brueggemann um, that inevitably falls apart and that inevitably gets kind of dashed to the rocks and, it, it seems to me like a lot of what American evangelicalism wants to do is wants to create a Christian nation in specifically the United States, but kind of North America as a whole. And yeah, it just, I think we're seeing the beginning of that, the, the beginnings of this, but it seems destined to fail and like to fall apart. Yeah, I think it probably has failed. I actually think that um, one of the things I, I sometimes use the, um, the metaphor of the way tsunamis work, like a tsunami um, is uh, is an event that by the time you see it has already occurred right. because because it's been generated by something that was out of sight. It's generated by like an underwater earthquake. And by the time the wave is coming towards you, there isn't anything to do about it. It's this, this is happening, man. Um, the, the same, uh, this is the way that I liken the current, the current moment with um, the reckoning that I think evangelicalism is in Um the uh, the the fact that people are leaving the evangelical church in droves, particularly younger people, um, anybody sort of younger than Gen X, the the the, um, the exodus is enormous. Right, this is what the statistics mostly tell us. Um, for and for a variety of reasons, and there aren't just they aren't just about like oh we're 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 tired of these scandals. That's not the only reason. There's a bunch of complicated interlocking reasons. If you want, go read um, uh, our, my colleague, Dr. Joel Thiessen's work on this front. He's got mm. really extensive empirical work about why people are, are sort of unplugging from organized religion in various ways. But I, but I think that, that this is something that, that is and has been happening. And I actually, like you were talking about like, um, like focal points or, or transition points or things that we can point to is like the big marker for this happening. And I honestly, I, I actually think that, that in, um, 
40 or 50 years, we'll, we'll really talk about um, the world before and the world after Donald Trump's presidency. Right. Um, as being a, as being a marker uh, between two different versions of Christianity and, and what happened to them in North America. Uh, the versions that, um, that sold themselves to, uh, to that um, vision of power that, uh, that Trump sort of really used to try and loop in evangelicals uh, and those who didn't. Um, and one of those groups, uh, I mean, they're, they're, it's entirely possible they'll both remain in a certain sense. Like they're, you know, heretical Christianity has existed alongside non-heretical Christianity at lots of points in Christian history. That's perfectly normal. Um, and sometimes you can't even tell which one is which without a couple of hundred years of context. Um, but, uh, but I do think that you're, that we're going to see the last 10 years as, as a meaningful transition point. Um, I, I, like, I can't speak for anybody else, but the world is real different for me now than it was when I started at Ambrose, which is about a decade ago. Um, just the conversations are just different in, in every conceivable way. And you, and you listed some of them there, like the things about gender or sexuality. That's part of this too. Right. Um, I, I keep trying to tell uh, evangelical leaders that, that are not necessarily willing to listen to this, but, but I don't think they understand the degree to which younger generations are on a completely different, like, um, plane of existence almost with some of these conversations. Oh yeah. Like it's just not even like it, it's, it's bonk, it's bonkers to a lot of young people that were having these debates. Uh, but it's bonkers to a lot of old people that were not having these debates. There is a really significant generational divide in the church, I think. Yeah. And, and, and it marks basically like on my birthday, it's more or less when I, <laughs> but it's like, it's sort of like late gen X is, is sort of where the split happens, right? Like where mm-hmm. older gen Xers and boomers, uh, they have a set of conversations and, and then uh, millennial, especially younger than younger millennials and, um, and people younger than millennials. There's, there's, there's sort of two different, there's like a chasm between them in my experience, as much as I'm not usually a big fan of generational talk. I think there is a bit of a chasm there. Yeah. And I think that there's a really interesting way, like I think the internet loops into this, that is still kind of being discovered. Cause I mean, I, I grew up with a very like technologically questionable household. And so I was sort of like separate from everything. And I see quote unquote, the next generation. I don't know if I'm like a young millennial or an old Gen Z. I think I'm in the middle somewhere. It's strange. Um, There are just made up categories anyways. Don't worry. (laughs) It's true. But yeah, I, I see a lot of the way like Gen Z is just having these conversations and it's so bafflingly different than anything even I grew up in. And it, yeah, like it's going to, I think it's going to rock the Christian world in a lot of ways that people just aren't anticipating. Yeah. And I think it has been, I think it it will continue to. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. And, and there's going to be lots of fallout from all of this. So so one thing I'll say about that is that this isn't like a new thing for the church. This has happened a whole bunch of times. Yeah. And this is the baffling thing to me is you still have churches arguing about like women in leadership and it's like the entire world has long moved on from that conversation. Yeah, I mean, well, they have and they haven't, right? They have and they haven't. I actually think that gender dynamics are are maybe the most fundamental um, keystone issue related to the stuff we're talking about here. And when I say gender dynamics, I don't just mean sexism as such. I mean, like, the... um, the cultural representation of ideal masculinity or ideal femininity. And even the notion that there are such things as those things, as there are like gender essentialisms. Um, I think that those, that there are really, really key conversations around that, 
um, that feed into um, all the things we've just been talking about. It's like like to go all the way back to Zacharias, right? They feed into the dynamics about how Zacharias abused the women that he abused and why people um, were not giving appropriate oversight to that or didn't stop him or challenge him or create barriers to that along the way. A lot of that has to do with um, the interplay between um, certain representations of masculinity and power. Uh, and and those things fed, they, they create like a feedback loop and that feedback loop facilitated his abuse. And, and in a certain sense, probably actually, I mean, caused is too strong of a word, but um, they, they were probably psychological players for him too, would be my guess. It's a, none of this stuff is just about sex, man. Like it's about power too, right? Yeah. And, and the things that are about power are about gender. The things that are about gender are about sex. And the things about sex are about marketing. And the things that are about marketing are about select. You know, like it's like the knee bone is connected to the hip bone. Like it's all connected um, all the way down. And the, and the problem is when you try to isolate individual components of it and try to tell the story only through the lens of that specific component without taking seriously all of the interlocking complexities. Like we haven't even talked about race. Right, uh, race and racism, mm-hmm. class, right, money. We've talked about a little bit, but that's a massive component of this conversation, right? Those are all massive components of this conversation. But I mean, like it could go on. I mean, it can go on almost literally forever. It probably should, in a certain sense, right? You need like generating generating a, an ongoing conversation about this is part of the point. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Like, there, there's so many other ways. Like, like you said, this is a conversation that, in a sense, we could go on forever. Um, Part of, part of me is like thinking tentatively about like the idea of like evangelical concepts of inerrancy and how that applies to all of this, but that's almost like a whole episode in its own right. Yeah, probably <laughs> several books in their own right. Yeah, <laughs> but it is. I mean, but it's part of it too, right? Like the the mm-hmm. um, the drive for certainty is connected to the things we're talking about, and, and inerrancy mm-hmm. is mostly about a, a version of certainty and control in interpretation. But again, you know, like. That's a that's a whole other complicated history. Uh, that's another that's another conversation for sure. But mm-hmm. like one last okay, one last thing. I think wrapping up okay. is a good idea. I got nothing to do anyways. But one last thing I will say is indicative of and contributing to the problems we're talking about are problems of representation. Yeah. And while it isn't a cure all to something like um, uh, like sexual abuse or sexual scandals to have women in leadership positions. It is a helpful thing to do, right? It's not going to fix the problem across the board. That would be naive and is naive about gender dynamics. And certainly women also contribute uh, in certain instances to their own versions of abuse. I don't, I don't mean to say that women are responsible for their, for abuse of themselves, but I mean that there are people who are women who are also abusive sometimes like that. That's a thing that happens. So it's not a cure all. You can't put all of the onus for this on including women in conversations, but a continued failure to uh, to have diverse representation, particularly in um, in powerful places, is is a problem, right? Uh, and and contributes to the problems that we're having. So, like even now, like we're having this conversation, even the three of us, but it's it's three white dudes sitting around having a conversation about this, which is something that you kind of got to point out and, and mm-hmm. name and say, well, that's maybe a little bit questionable. Maybe like some more diversity in terms of even a, even a small conversation is valuable. Um, but but much more importantly, at the level of institutional and structural leadership, 
the fact that a lot of institutions continue to shut women out, either overtly or covertly, is contributing to the problems that we're talking about here. Now, again, not going to be a cure-all, but it's a, it's a step in the right direction, right, to, um, to change and to challenge our, our, um, uh, our, our masculinist portrayals of leadership. That's something that we probably need to think about. That's good. One one small step in the cataclysmic wave of things that need to happen, but it's it's a step. Yeah, and that's that's kind of the interesting thing that I feel like at least I keep coming to in this podcast where we have like these big grandiose conversations and it's like, all right, how do we how do we fix the church? Well, um but yeah, then you 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 bring it into like a smaller scale conversation. It's like, okay, how can I work in this community? How can I work in this environment? And you do what you can. Yeah, all solutions are um, fine-grained and iterative, right? It's all, like, you can, nobody changes entire institutions in one fell swoop. That's not a thing. At least I've never, I mean, it's so rare um, that it seldom occurs. So I would say um, that you need to be attentive to your personal capacity. You need to be influencing your own personal circles of influence in certain ways. I think the first thing that all Christians need to do is to have a theology focused on death to self and, mm-hmm. um, and a, an appropriate understanding. Um, and like I, I'll use the term holiness, though people really misunderstand that word a lot. I don't, I don't mean like, um, you're never allowed to drink Coke or something like that. Like, I don't mean like arbitrary rules that you live up to. Um, but, um, a desire to be, to be having your own life formed, into the image of Christ as I think a Christian desire. I think that should be a good thing. Um, so like those little, you know, tiny little individual changes, but they're also iterative, right? You come back on them over and over and over again and let them challenge you and read you and change you and push you those kinds of things. And then not letting things go, right? Not letting people get away with crap. They shouldn't get away with, um, is another, that's, that's what makes people hate you. But you know, that's part of the deal too. Anyway, yeah, I don't know. I mean, we you've probably talked me out at least on some of this. I mean, that's probably true. <laughs> I, I'm a university professor. You can't really talk me out. My batteries go on forever. But um, but as far as I can think about this specific issue with with Zacharias, those are the things that I think are yeah. that come to mind for me. Yeah. I don't know, Noah. Do you have any closing thoughts? Summative thoughts? Um, we need to die and. Uh, we need to be constantly dying, I think, mm-hmm. in a way, and constantly allowing those idols of certainty, of of winning, of triumphalism, of of power. Mm-hmm. It, it we just it's gonna hurt, and it's not gonna be fun, but it needs to die, and that's just all part of it. And I think oftentimes we miss that, both in the church and just in general that death is necessary yeah it's integral to christianity right it is like when christ says take up your cross this is Mm -hmm. what he means Mm -hmm. yep those were those were my final thoughts thanks yeah that's good (laughs) wanted to end on a cheery note there (laughs) (laughs) well i think i mean to make it cheery like this is the hard 
I'm sorry. This is this is the, the nature. Point was to not be cheering. This is the intrinsic nature of our dynamic, Noah. Somebody has to be an optimist sometimes. <sighs> um, but like the heart blood of the faith is death and then resurrection. If you just have the death, it kind of sucks and it doesn't really go anywhere. And I've heard people try to preach that message, and it doesn't it doesn't do anything, but there is resurrection with death. And when you die to self, there, again, it's in the process of becoming um, a better, a better person, more Christ-like. I think, um, hopefully, this, I, we have the, the Old Testament professor in the room, so hopefully I'm not completely butchering this. But I think of, like, Hosea 10, 12, which is a verse I've heard kind of in this context and was meaningful to me, at least, and the idea of, like, breaking up your fallow ground and like pulling these things apart and then waiting for the Lord's righteousness to come and rain upon you. And yeah, I think that's what we need to do as a church. That's what we need to do individually. We need to, to find these things that we've become fallow and stiff and break those apart and die to self and crucify that. um, And hope that new and better things come out of it. I was just going to say, like, I agree that, Yes, we need to die to self and then recognize that by doing so, we are embracing the larger self, the the true self, one might say. But my focus was on death because I feel like oftentimes in evangelicalism, death is a part that is ignored and there's so much focus on the resurrection. Oh, see, I uh, if you look. Yeah. If you look at the typical Good Friday services, well, I and mean, that's not true in all churches, but in the churches I grew up in, Good Friday was ignored and all the focus was on Resurrection Sunday. Or Good Friday is a happy service for some reason, right? Somebody comes That's to yeah. Good Friday services and is happy. But I think that the the big the the tension between the two things you, you're both saying, which are both really vitally important, partly come down to to agency and responsibility, and to understanding that in Christianity, at least, not everything is the believer's responsibility. In fact, very few things are the believer's responsibility. But one responsibility we have as believers is the submission of self to God. Mm-hmm. which is a version of dying to self. The resurrection is somebody else's job, right? Mm. Like, like no, nobody, re- I don't resurrect me. That's yeah. bonkers. I don't, I don't triumph myself. I don't take victory over. Um, I am responsible to, you know, like you're both saying, I'm responsible to take up my cross, to submit myself to the death to self that Christ talks about and to place myself in God's hands for the resurrection component. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and God gets to do that in the way that God wants to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is the other thing you draw, like, and you're drawing that out of Hosea in a, in a good way, Glennon. And it's, it's pervasive in the prophetic literature. Mm-hmm. Prophetic sure. literature is where God Im, intervenes in the life of Israel or Judah. And one of the things that God does is destroys in order to resurrect, but the, the, the resurrection work is God's work. Yeah. And, and, and he doesn't really look for volunteers to help um, and, and isn't really trying to, yeah, we, we don't need triumphant churches, mm. right? We need sacrificial churches. And, and if that leads to like um, the triumph of an honest witness, then that's mm. consequential, but that's somebody else's job, right? That's not my right. That's not my bag, right? So some of it just comes down to being in your own lane and letting and letting <laughs> God do God's job and you do your job. Um, and and we spend a lot of time 
trying to micromanage the Holy Spirit and the work of God in the church. And that's not ideal in my opinion. Mm-mm. But I think you're both on the right, in the right way uh, about the conversation, about what needs to happen and what is happening. Because mm-hmm. also God does the killing if, if it helps. That's true. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Such a true uh, way. There you go, Noah. There you got your dark ending that you were looking for. There, that's your Enneagram 4 ending that you were, you were hoping perfect. for. That's all I wanted. Out of <laughs> Just want some <laughs> melancholy, man. <laughs> uh, Just let me be sad. I mean, at the same time, though, I feel like in the pandemic, it's just like there's so much melancholy. I miss the days <laughs> where fair. I could be melancholic about things that are so pointless instead of all these important. Like, Noah, uh, Noah, Noah, in his Enneagram four wants to be uniquely melancholy. Yeah, he doesn't yeah. want everybody else to share in his melancholy. <laughs> That's exactly it. Freaking sad people everywhere. Get out of my sadness. This is yeah. mine. Go back to being um, happy. Bunch of jerks. No, oh boy. man that's funny um, glendon do you have any questions for colin that you've always wanted to ask now's your opportunity oh oh <laughs> um, oh my goodness i this is such an open window i don't know the first thing that came to mind is hpt but you've already been asking about that so i feel like I know i'm just treading old ground i'm very aware of its of its history <laughs> and inception don't worry so the appropriate parties have been punished mm. <laughs> As they should. It was still a very weird thing. Yes, it was. Colin, have you been watching WandaVision? I don't know. That's the only Oh, I love that show. Right so good. Yeah, it's so it's good. So smart. It's finally like comic book movie doing something that comic books actually do. Like it's like it's like a comic book writer actually wrote it instead of all the mediocrity of the MCU. <laughs> it's real good. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love it. It's a good time. Yeah, the writing's really good too. The, the last episode mm-hmm. was really good. Oh yeah, and and it's, um, what's her name? Um, um, Elizabeth Olsen. Yeah, Elizabeth Olsen is so good in it. Yeah, like Paul Bettany is is like he's been a great actor for a long time. That's not news, mm-hmm. but um, Elizabeth Olsen is really coming into like some very serious work in that show, which I'm mm-hmm. really happy about. Because I mean, like you can't even tell if somebody's a good actor or a bad actor in the MCU movies. No, it's just like they're an action movie star who really cares. Um, they just move their hands around with like flexed muscles. It's not that interesting, but but um, she's done really good emotional work on this. It's been quite beautiful. Mm-hmm. Have you watched uh, Wind River? No, no, I haven't. So it's I think it's uh, I can never remember if it's Taylor. Or it's Tyler. I think it's Taylor Sheridan. Okay, who did like Hell or High Water? Um, some other stuff. He I think wrote with Denny Villeneuve for Sicario. I think that's correct. Okay. Um. But yeah, it's so it's Elizabeth Olsen and Jeremy Renner, who questionable, but um, it's basically about um, like she is, I think, an FBI agent or something. And she goes up to like the indigenous north uh, and it's about like missing indigenous woman and that whole scene. It's a very, very grim movie, but very well done. Oh, that sounds no, that sounds interesting. Maybe I'll go Wind River. Yeah, sounds like worth my time. I I just I like good, I like well written and acted things. That makes me happy. Mm-hmm. So. It's fun to see these people in the MCU actually get a chance to act and like flex a little bit. And I think yeah, some of them are well, real good. Some of them are yeah. not not very good. But that's a different <laughs> conversation. Okay. Yeah, and so I think hopefully that's the virtue of like these Disney Plus shows going forward is that 
not only like these actors get to act, but they actually get to do some like character writing for once. And so I, just... I would not have high <laughs> hopes for the other. I think WandaVision is a is a peculiar because of how it was set up. I think it's an oddity. I I I am not anticipating the um, what's it called the Winter Soldier one being <laughs> any anything <laughs> like this. That's, That's going to be much more actiony, I think. Which is if it's fine, whatever. I mean, everybody needs some escapist junk too. That's I don't have a problem. There you go. <laughs> All right, Noah. Mm. Uh, where did you go after the precursor to Ambrose for university? Mm. Oh, um, my um, my BTH is from yeah from Canadian Bible College. My MA is from Ambrose Seminary, and my PhD is from McMaster Divinity College. Ah, so McMaster. I was at Mac for four or five years in between um uh, working with um mark boda is my was my doctoral supervisor he's my mentor though he was also he um he had my the job i have now he had like two iterations ago so he was my um, undergraduate old testament prof too but then he moved on to mac and then by the time i went on to do doctoral work he was at mac so that's where i went oh interesting i was just curious yeah no it's no Ontario, problem you Ontario said you Western next, right yeah, Western. Yep. That's that neck of the woods. You'll like it out there. Ontario, I mean, people in um, Alberta are really quite ridiculous about Ontario. It's it's a beautiful place. <laughs> and, and Toronto's pretty cool, to be totally honest with you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'll only be two hours from Toronto, I think. So there Yeah, you yeah. Road trip. Oh, it's going to be a 31-hour drive. It's a beautiful mm-hmm. drive, though. You should go at least one direction one time. Take the... Mm-hmm. Um, the North Shore Superior, the Trans Canada route. Ooh. It's faster to go through the states, yeah. Mm-hmm. But at least one time, drive the Trans Canada the whole way. It's really something. Though it'll also give you a sense of what you mean when you mean you're far away from people, because when you when you like uh, the trek from like Thunder Bay to Wawa is just indescribably empty. It's all forest and and shield. It's beautiful, but there's just nothing up there. It's better than the drive through Manitoba. I love driving in the prairies, but I grew up in the prairies. So I like I find it relaxing. That's fair. Saskatchewan I can find relaxing. Manitoba is less so. (laughs) It's long. It's large. Yeah. Love Winnipeg. Love Winnipeg. Oh no, Winnipeg sucks, but that's a different conversation. You should listen to the listen to the song uh, "I Hate Winnipeg" by the. Ooh. Oh yeah. yeah, oh, my dad is was born in Winnipeg, grew up in Winnipeg, so we definitely we know that song. Nice. And Glendon, you're from Winnipeg, right? I would never say I'm from Winnipeg. I was born in Halifax. Um, I moved to east of Winnipeg when I was like in grade three, after living in Saskatchewan and a couple other places. So I maybe grew up in Manitoba. I would never say I'm from Winnipeg. <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, That's really funny. Fair enough. Well, anyways, guys, I better pack it in. For that sure. We'll wrap it up. Right. Uh, thank you. No, it's my pleasure. Thank you for, for jumping me. on and discussing. It was a really great conversation. It was fun. Wide ranging. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> it really was. We went, we went places. <laughs> but yeah. And, um, yeah, I think that'll uh, wrap up the episode. So thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed, be sure to let us know. Leave us a comment. Um, please subscribe. let us know. Yeah, please, please, please let us know. We're desperate. Um, 
And, uh, yeah, so uh, until next time, uh, Glendon, do your outro thing. Do my outro. I, I thought I was going to change okay. it for season two. I forgot what that was. Uh, good night, Seattle. Yeah, so long, Toronto. Um, happy, happy, whatever. I don't know. End. The end. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that's it. <laughs>